continuing to work our way through the book of Romans in the 8th chapter. So I encourage you to turn there. Our focus of attention tonight will be the 12th and the 13th verses, but we'll begin reading now in verse 9, Romans 8, verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Father, we pray now tonight that as we hear about and think about and as I preach about sin in a broad and general way that you would place your finger on specific areas of sin in our own lives that need repented of, areas where we need to grow, sins that we need to put to death. Show us specific application for ourselves as individuals tonight and bring us all to the feet of the one who is a Savior for us, not only as individuals but as a family. Show us ourselves tonight, we pray, and show us our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. She had lived her whole life in the underworld of sex trafficking. A mere slave of the system is all she was, sold nightly to the highest bidder. Until one night something strange happened. A man appeared seemingly out of nowhere, out of the darkness, and offered to pay her overlord for the rest of her nights as long as she lived. He was a kind man. He was a gentle man. And he took her home and made her, to her surprise, not his concubine, but his beloved wife. He spoke tenderly to her. They had children together. She began to live a normal, happy life. No longer a slave, but a bride. No longer obligated to walk the streets for money, but provided for in every way. No reason to return to her old master and her old ways. But we learn in Hosea chapter 3 that she did return to her old master and her old ways. We learn there in Hosea 3 that this woman hunted up her old whoring clothes and went right back out to the street corners again. This time not because anyone forced her to, but because she wanted to. She's a free woman living like a slave, a woman loved by her husband and yet looking for satisfaction in so many other places. It's a story, of course, of Gomer, the wife of the prophet Hosea. But her story as a type is also the story of us all as believers in Jesus. We were slaves to our flesh, owned by a master called sin, until one day a gentle tender man appeared out of nowhere and bought our freedom. 
made us his bride, provided for us so that now we are free and we are loved. We are no longer obligated to return to the street corners there where we once prostituted ourselves. Whether those street corners for us were simply something like laziness or bitterness or pride or unhealthy relationships or internet pornography or love for money and comfort or a sharp tongue or selfish ambition or food or whatever it may be. We've been delivered and brought in to his home and made his bride. You think for a moment about what particular sins that you struggle with the most. Make those things tonight your application point for verse 12 and for this sermon. What are the barnacles of sin that still cling most tightly to you? What are the old ways that you still struggle and are tempted to go back to? Whatever they are, Paul says in verse 12 that you do not have to return to them. Why? Because in verse 2, you've been set free from the law of sin by Christ Jesus. And because verses 9 and 10, you're now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, verse 12, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. We don't have to go back. Now, Satan may try to deceive us. He may tell us that we'll never be anything more than his prostitute. He may tell us that we will never be anything more than a slave to this lust or that sin. But what Paul is reminding us here in verse 12 is that we don't have to listen to our old master anymore. Jesus has bought us out of that slavery. We're now his bride. He loves us. He has ransomed us. And we don't have to go back, he says. We are under obligation not to the flesh. So that now if we're in Christ, the only reason any of us sins is because we want to. We can go back to sin, but Paul is reminding us we do not have to go back to sin. And yet we find that we're like Gomer, aren't we? We find as we flip down through the chapters of our own lives that we have often done just what she did. Having been ransomed, we often find ourselves going back like a dog to our own vomit. All too often, we retrace our steps and find ourselves back on the same old streets as before. And tonight, from Romans 8, 12, and 13, Paul is going to offer us, first of all, some motivation to stay home. He's going to remind us tonight that we have no good reason to hunt up the old perfume and the old lipstick and go back the way we were. And we have every good reason to stay at home with our husband, Jesus. He's going to offer us motivation. And then secondly, he's going to give us some application. He's going to give us practical pointers that will help us stay off the street corners of sin. The first and primary bit of motivation then that he offers us is what we've already seen. Simply this. You have no obligation to sin. You are no longer sin's prostitute. You no longer have to go back to the greatest of all panders, the devil, and do his bidding. We are in Christ the well-loved, well-taken-care-of bride of Jesus. 
and we have no reason and no obligation to return to sin. We are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. What's that sin that still so easily entangles you? You think of it in your mind? And you read verse 12. You are not under obligation to that. You do not have to keep doing what you're doing. Now let's let Paul give us a second motivation. Not only are we under no obligation to the flesh, but we are actually under obligation to Christ. That's another reason to stay at home with your husband. We belong to him now. And we ought to be faithful to Him. We are under obligation to Christ. Now when you read down through these two verses, you'll find that Paul never explicitly says this. He never explicitly says we are under obligation to Jesus, to a new master. But based on the, the way he forms his sentence, based on the sentence structure in verse 12, I think that's what is implied here. In other words, if you read verses 12 and 13 again, it almost seems like Paul never finishes his original thought. Maybe he just got on a roll uh, and never came back to finish what he originally intended to say. We all do that sometimes. Or maybe he just expected us to fill in the blanks with the obvious conclusions. But either way, it seems to me that he stops here in midstream. Listen to the verses again. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And then he goes on to begin some new thoughts about what it means to be a son of God. But did you notice the beginning of the sentence there in verse 12? We are under obligation. And you would expect when someone begins a sentence with we are under obligation that they would go on eventually to tell you to whom we are under obligation. But Paul never does that. It seems by the Spirit's guidance he gets sidetracked. So that in mid-sentence he shifts gears and decides that before he tells us to whom we are under obligation, he'd better pause and tell us to whom we are not under obligation. Namely, the flesh. But then he never goes back and finishes the thought. It doesn't sound like what he originally intended was just to say that we're not under obligation to the flesh. If that was all he meant, he could have just said we are not under obligation to the flesh. But he begins the sentence positively. We are under obligation to someone. He just never gets back to telling us to whom we're under obligation. But I think the answer is obvious in the rest of the passages. And I've already told you what I think the answer is. We're under obligation not to the flesh, but to God. To Christ Jesus, verse 2, who has ransomed us from sin. To the Spirit, verses 5 and following, who lives in us. We're under obligation to the Father, whose sons we are, beginning in verse 14. So, why should we keep our old sinful get-ups locked away in the closet? Why should we not go back out and walk the streets of our old sins? Why should we remain at home with our bridegroom? Well, first of all, because we no longer have to sin, we are under obligation not to the flesh. But second, because we are under obligation to God. Now, what does that mean? Under obligation to God. A lot of folks are uncomfortable with the word obligation and with a statement like that. We're under obligation to God. For some people, they, 
don't like it because it sounds too much like payback. And they say, under obligation to God? I thought Jesus paid it all. So how can we be under obligation to God if Jesus already paid for us? And that's the right way to think. Because it's true, we don't have to pay God back. Jesus has paid it all. But that's not what Paul means by obligation. In fact, the whole idea of paying someone back is so that you're no longer under obligation to them, right? You want to pay someone back so that you're no longer beholden to them, so that they no longer have you under their thumb, so that you get out from under your obligation. But that's not what Paul has in mind, that we would pay God back so that we don't any longer have to be under obligation. This is a lifetime thing he's talking about here. So he doesn't mean payback. What does he mean then when he says we're under obligation to God or when he implies that we are? I think he simply means that we have a new master. Sin and Satan used to master us. We did what we did in our old lives, not only because we liked it, but because we were enslaved. But now we have a new master. One who has paid with his own blood for our freedom. And we don't take that lightly. And therefore, because he has bought us, and because he owns us, we are now obligated to be loyal to Christ. Obligated to be loyal to Christ. But even with that explanation, sometimes people are still uncomfortable with this kind of language. Uncomfortable with the language of obligation. And the reason is because as natural men, and we all still struggle with the flesh, we don't want to be obligated to anyone. I mean, that's why we look forward to the weekend, because we think, well, now I don't have anybody telling me where I have to be and when I have to be there and what I have to do. And that's why we like vacation, because we can set aside all of our obligations. And the natural man, the flesh, says, I don't want to be obligated to anyone. And if you tell me I'm obligated to God, I don't think I like that. I think God loves us, and he has good plans for us, and and his plans for us are to prosper us and not to harm us. But obligation? No, 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 no. Because obligation sounds to people like drudgery or limitation or slavery. But I want to remind you again of the story of Hosea and Gomer. Not only does she represent the fickleness of every Christian, but he represents the tenderness of God. God, like Hosea, is not like the other masters. God is not a slave driver. God is not like those pimps that held Gomer hostage and used her up like a pack of cigarettes and then threw her away to anyone who would pay 30 shekels of silver for her. God's not like that. God is a husband. God is a lover of our souls. And the obligatory honor and obedience that we show to Him, therefore, looks a whole lot more like thanksgiving and trust and loyalty and love and privilege than it looks like a ball and chain. All of us can relate to this from either participating in or observing others who are participating in happy marriages. In a happy marriage, is there obligation? Absolutely. But is that obligation a drudgery? Not for a moment if it's a happy marriage. Being obliged to your spouse brings joy and it brings trust and security. And it brings contentment. And that's the way it is with God. Are we obligated to Him? Yes, without question. 
We must love God. We must obey him. We must trust him. But when we actually get busy fulfilling our obligations to God, we find that it's not such a bad gig after all. It's actually a pleasure to serve someone who has in so many much greater ways served us. It's a thrill and it is a constant source of thanksgiving to be loyal to the one who showed up for us that day on the auction block and bought us. Filthy, used, and prostituted to sin, he bought us and made us his bride. It's a privilege to serve him. It's a privilege to be obliged to God. So, why should we stop walking the streets of sin? Why should we not go back to those same old places? Not only because we have no obligation to go there, but because we do have an obligation to be with our new husband. And Paul now gives us a third reason why we shouldn't return to the old street corners of sin. Namely, because, verse 13, there are grave consequences if we do. There are grave consequences if we make no application of the truth in verse 12. And the consequences are these. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. Now that's not an idle threat. That's not a preacher exaggerating for effect. Paul means what he says. And more than that, the Holy Spirit who inspired what Paul wrote means what he says. And what he says is if you continue to go back again and again to your favorite street corners of sin, if you love your sins and are content to stay in them, if there's no real strain on your conscience and no revulsion in your stomach when you find yourself back in your old prostitute's clothing, then you probably aren't a Christian. That's what he's saying. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. And he's not talking about physical death only because everyone dies physically. Even if they're walking in the Spirit, our bodies are dead to sin. He's talking about hell. If you continue in your old ways as a habit, you will die. Now, question, is this coupled with the latter half of verse 13, which says, if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live? Is verse 13 a form of work salvation? We've asked this before from Romans 8. And again, it sounds like Paul is saying, do bad things and you'll die. Do good things and you'll get into heaven. It sounds like he's advocating work salvation. But that's not what he's doing. What he's doing here is simply reminding us that though they are not the cause of our salvation, works, in keeping with repentance, are the evidence of our salvation. For those who have been bought with a price... We've been not only forgiven by God, but we have been changed by God. Christ has not only put an end to sin's power, verses 1 and 2, or sin's, uh, excuse me, sin's penalty, verses 1 and 2, but he's also put an end to sin's power, verses 3 and following. Not only has Christ died for you, but he's also come to live in you. So that leaving behind your old behaviors and subsequently taking up new ones is not the cause of your salvation, but it is the effect of your salvation. As those who have been truly saved, we have been given new life. 
And those who are given new life begin to actually live a new life. And the presence or lack thereof of this new life then serves as solid evidence that determines who is going to heaven and who is not. So again, salvation is holy by the grace of God, as we know. But as we often need to be reminded, grace is more than forgiveness. Grace is also the gift of a new heart, those new attitudes and appetites and preoccupations and desires that we've been speaking of, which lead to new behaviors. And those new desires and those new behaviors serve as evidence. They tell us whether we're on the broad road that leads to destruction, whether we must die, verse 13a, or whether we're on the narrow road to life and therefore will live, verse 13b. If you are living according to the flesh, you're demonstrating that you've never been born again and therefore you must die. So then, having put the the scare of legalism to rest, we need to hear this one more time and we need to hear it seriously and we need to take it literally. What Paul says in verse 13 is this, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. If you make no application of the things of the Spirit, you are on your way to hell, Paul says. Now, he's not, as we said a week ago, setting up a standard for perfection. He's not saying that if you're ever tempted to pop open the trunk and put on your old sinful clothing, that you're going to go to hell. And he's not even saying that if you, like Gomer, actually put on the old clothing and go back to the old habits for a period of time that you're necessarily bound for hell. What he's saying, I believe, is this. And the word that needs to be emphasized, I believe, is this. If you are living according to those old habits, if you are living according to the flesh, in other words, if those old habits over time continue to be your habits, if they continue to be your lifestyle, then you must die. If the old ways are never fought against, if they're just accepted and embraced, and there's no change at all, then you must die. If you're content to remain in your sin, then you've never been born again. And if you've never been born again, then Jesus says you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there's hope. I think there's great hope in Paul's words. He's not giving us a standard of perfection. And he's not teaching us that salvation is of works. But his words are to be taken literally. If you are living, habitually living, according to the flesh, you must die. If there's clearly no new life in you tonight, then you have not been delivered from your old slave master. And you are not headed for life, but for death. Let me just ask you before we go on, as I have the last couple of weeks, is that you? Honestly, do your appetites and your attitudes and your preoccupations and your behavior demonstrate that While you're maybe a nice person, you're not God's person. Has God convicted you that maybe His Spirit isn't living in you? Is it becoming clearer to you that the flesh and not the Spirit is still the determining factor in your life? If so, the solution tonight is not just to pretty yourself up spiritually. For a prostitute 
is still a prostitute and is still selling her body even if she works in a high-end hotel and wears a lovely black evening gown. And you are still selling your soul even if you're doing so in ways that seem to everyone else to be nice and upstanding. If God hasn't come and changed your heart, you are still giving yourself to other lovers, be they prosperity or entertainment or self-sufficiency or pride. The solution is not self-improvement. The solution for you is the same as it was for Gomer, to look for that kindly face in the crowd, that man who is willing to put himself up on a cross to get you down off of the auction block of sin. The solution is not to hide behind a moral facade or your religious background. The solution is to hide yourself in Christ Jesus. I pray that someone here who is convicted that you're not born again would do just that tonight. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Those who have been born again have a new behavior pattern. They're now putting to death the deeds of the body. That's a continual thing. It doesn't say they have put to death the deeds of the body, but they are putting to death. It's a process, but it's happening. If you're born again, it's happening in you. And so I want to conclude tonight with some thoughts on how once we've hidden ourselves in Christ, once we've been born again, how we can get about putting to death the deeds of the body. How practically can we stop living according to the flesh? How practically can we put to death the deeds of the body? Get ourselves off of those old patterns and off of those old street corners. Paul's answer is by the Spirit. If by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. How do I put to death the deeds of the body? Well, the Spirit will do it, Paul says. So some people read that and that's as far as they go. And they say, well, Jesus says the Spirit's like the wind and it blows wherever it wants. And so I'm just going to kind of hang out until the Spirit kind of blows me off the street corner into righteous living. But those who are paying attention to what Paul says will say something like this. Okay, Paul, the Spirit is the one who's going to do it. But Paul, you also tell us here in verse 13 that we ourselves have some practical responsibility in this Because you say, Paul, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the Spirit is the the means or the helper, but it is you that's actually working with Him and putting to death the deeds of the body. So what are you supposed to do? How can you get the Holy Spirit's help? And how can you, therefore, kill your own sin? And do it not in your own power, but by the Spirit. Well, you'll be pleased to know that Paul doesn't tell us the answer here. But I think that if we read the rest of his writings, we can begin to put some things together. And I want to give you three answers tonight, none of which will be new to most of you. A couple of which we've already mentioned previously in Romans 8 which I think would be well to group them together tonight. How can you, by the Spirit, not in your own strength, put to death the deeds of the body? Three things, briefly. Number one, pray. Pray. As we get to verses 26 and 27 of this chapter, 
we're going to find that we are not alone when we pray. We're going to find actually that prayer is the realm of the Spirit because He is the one who prompts our prayers and He is the one who guides our prayers. He's the one who teaches us to pray. He's the one who actually prays for us when we don't know how to pray. Prayer is the breath of the Spirit living in us and breathing out of us to the throne of God. So one obvious way, as we said a few weeks back, to put to death the deeds of the body, not in your own strength, but by the Spirit, is to pray in the Spirit. To pray when you face temptation. To pray for deliverance from those besetting sins that I asked you to think of tonight. To pray for deliverance from those old habits. To pray for strength. And while you pray, the Spirit will be praying with you, And the Spirit will be praying in you. And the Spirit, if you don't know what to pray, will be praying for you. And the Father at His throne above will be answering those prayers with strength from on high so that you will begin to kill your sin by the Spirit. And I just say again tonight, when it comes to killing our sin and the strength of the Spirit, the truth of the matter for me often and probably for you as well is that we have not because we ask not. So, number one, pray. In the Spirit. Now, before I give you numbers two and three, let me just interject here with some wise words from John Piper. Most of you know the name. He's an author, he's a pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. And wrestling with Romans 8.13 and trying to figure out what it means that we should fight sin not in the strength of our own try-harders or do-betters, but actually by the Spirit. Asking, what does that mean, kill sin by the Spirit? He makes this, I think, Incredibly astute observation. He says this, Among all the spiritual armor, Ephesians 6, that we are to put on in our warfare, there is only one offensive weapon that is used for killing the sword. And what is it? The sword of the Spirit. So if we are to kill the deeds of the body by the Spirit, and the one killing weapon in our armor is the sword, and it is called the sword of the Spirit, then we have good reason to think that the agent for killing sin by the Spirit is this sword. And what is the sword of the Spirit? Ephesians six seventeen says it is the Word of God. The sword that kills sin is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And the way we kill sin by the Spirit is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, that is, on the Word of God in Scripture, which becomes then the sword of the Spirit in our hands. Now, I find the connection that he makes there between killing sin in Romans 8 and taking up the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6 very helpful. Paul has given us a wonderful clue in Ephesians 6 that the way to kill sin by the Spirit is to look to and to use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So how do we kill sin by the Spirit? Sunday school. Pray and read your Bible. Isn't that easy? How do you kill sin by the Spirit? You pray in the Spirit, you read your Bible, which is the sword of the Spirit. It sounds simplistic. But now with these final two points of application, let me just go a little bit deeper into what it means to use the Bible to kill sin. Number one, pray. Number two, read the Bible looking for motivation, not merely obligation. Read the Bible looking for motivation, not merely obligation. 
Now, we've said already, and we need to say again, that we are under obligation to God. We don't throw that out. So we should read the Bible looking for obligations to fulfill joyfully, looking for commandments to obey. But if we only go to the Bible looking for commandments and obligations, we may be left trying to obey those commandments and fulfill those obligations in our own power. But if we want to actually do those things, obey and fulfill by the Spirit, then we need not only look for obligations, but we need to look for motivations. We need to read the Bible asking questions like this. Why does God want me to obey? Not like, why would God tell me to do this, but why does this promote His kingdom? And how is this going to be good for me? Those kinds of questions. We need to look for promises that are attached to commandments. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother. The first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and you will live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Many of God's commandments come with promises attached to motivate us to obey. We need to ask, is there a threat if I don't obey a particular command? Or in general, we have a threat in verse 13 tonight. And that motivates us, I hope, to obey. We can say to ourselves, is there a character sketch? Maybe a story like that of Hosea and Gomer that will not only get inside my head, but will also stir my heart and help me to do the right thing? Is there a story of God's faithfulness in the past that will help me to remember that He is good in the present and therefore to do what He asks? Is there a facet of God's goodness that this particular command that I'm reading reveals to me? Sometimes you can read the commands and you can tell that they're they're commands, but they're also teaching you something about what God is like because of what He commands. And that motivates you. All these things are important. The commandments will fill your mind with truth about right ways of living, but it is the promises and the threatenings and the character sketches and the stories of God's past faithfulness that will stir your heart and motivate you to actually obey. So motivation is crucial if we are going to use the sword of the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body. Number three, and finally, how do we kill sin by the Spirit and not in our own strength? Preach the gospel to ourselves. Preach the gospel to yourself. If you want to put to death your sin in the power of the Spirit, then preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to yourself from the Bible, in the power of the Spirit, hopefully, but preach it to yourself. Don't rely on me to be the only one preaching to you. Preach the gospel to yourself. If you want to kill sin by the Spirit's power, not by your own power, one of the most helpful things you can do is constantly preach Christ to yourself. For it is there at the cross that you have the greatest reminder that you needed someone else to take care of your sins for you. And if you needed someone else to take away sin's penalty, you know that you will not no matter how many resolves you make, be able on your own to get rid of sin's presence in your life. You need help. And the cross is the reminder of that. Preaching the gospel to yourself will keep you humble enough to keep looking for that help outside of yourself and from above. And preaching the gospel to yourself will remind you of something else. 
or remind you of what we've been saying tonight. Namely, that because Jesus died, not only is there no condemnation from sin, but there is no longer any obligation to sin. Jesus died to buy you back from that taskmaster that is sin. Jesus bled so that you can be set free, so that you do not have to sin. The gospel says that. You have been set free. You are under obligation, yes, but not to the flesh. That's the gospel. Preach that to yourself. Preach God's beloved Son to yourself and do it regularly. And if you do, you will find yourself, not all at once, but you will find yourself consistently by the Spirit putting to death the deeds of the body.